This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to give an update on the Middle East. I believe strongly that God desires we keep our focus on the Middle East. No matter what your position on eschatology, the theology or doctrine of end times, the end of history will occur in this region. Of that, there's no doubt. The campaign of Armageddon, for example, will be in the Jezreel Valley of Israel. That campaign will involve all major world powers. So it matters to us what is occurring in this region. I'm not in any way suggesting and trying to set dates. I'm just saying that it is important for us as believers, understanding Scripture, that we keep our eyes on the Middle East. So in this perspective, the first one in our program today, I want to review some recent developments in this region. First of all, is the contrast between how President Obama is treating Israel and how he is treating Syria. By and large, Obama's response to the so-called Arab Spring that's been sweeping the Arab world has been rather timid. No one could argue that he is taking the lead among world leaders in promoting democratic change in the Middle East. Furthermore, Obama remains cautious in condemning Bashar al-Assad, the current dictator of Syria. Assad has been using tanks and helicopter gunships against his own people to hold on to power. The slaughter of his own people should have produced a blistering condemnation from the United States government. It has not. This timidity informs even how the United States responds to Syria. But there is one exception to this timidity, Israel. Obama is relentlessly tough on Israel. Listen to the columnist Jackson Deal. Quote, Obama has spoken in public on Syria just twice since its massacres began over three months ago, but he chose to spell out United States terms for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations without the agreement of Israel's prime minister on the eve of meeting him at the White House and with only a few hours' notice, arguably the most high-handed presidential act in U.S.-Israeli relations since the Eisenhower administration. Now, with prodding from the European Union, Obama is attempting to strong-arm Israelis and Palestinians into beginning negotiations on the parameters he has set. The talks must be agreed to this month, says Washington. They must begin by September. Consider the two parties to these negotiations, Israel and the Palestinians. Benjamin Netanyahu, he leads an Israeli right-wing coalition that would collapse should he agree to Obama's terms. No Israeli leader can survive politically negotiations where the 1967 lines are the basis for negotiation. Second, consider Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Authority. He is 76 years old, planning to retire. Deal writes, he has committed himself to spending the next year seeing through reconciliation with the Hamas movement, arranging elections for his successor, and seeking recognition for Palestine at the United Nations. 
For two years, he has refused to negotiate with Netanyahu, whom he despises. Even Yasser Arafat attempted more and was more disposed to the wrenching concession needed for a deal with Israel. Who would guarantee that the Palestinian president elected next May would pick up where Abbas has left off? No one, of course. What is astonishing about our current president in the United States is that he is so tough and, in his words, speaks truth to Israel, but has no stomach to speak truth to Syria. Israel is our friend and partner in the Middle East. Engaging the moderate, and these are Obama's words, Assad of Syria is absolutely fruitless and naive. Such engagement, and I put that in quotation marks, has only produced more terror for the people of Syria. I find all of this quite perplexing, and actually I'm rather ashamed of our current government because of it. Second, a few thoughts on the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for the magazine The Atlantic, writes that the Brotherhood, quote, believes generally in the primacy of Muslim law, in the supremacy of Islam, and in the idea that women and men should play their traditional roles in society. They also tend to believe that the West and Israel, the country they consider a Western outpost in the Middle East, seeks, through conspiracy, to undermine their way of life. Goldberg reports that he had an extensive interview with one of the key leaders of the Egyptian Brotherhood, who absolutely refused to respond to the two most sensitive questions facing him. Would the Brotherhood support a Christian for the Egyptian presidency? Could it support, secondly, a woman? The Brotherhood's 2007 draft party platform, from which the organization is now trying to distance itself, actually, makes clear that a Christian could not serve as the president of Egypt. Furthermore, the creed of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is rather categorical. Quote, Allah is our objective. The prophet is our leader. Quran is our law. Jihad is our way. Dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. Close that quote from the creed of the Muslim Brotherhood. Over the last few weeks, news reports have detailed the formation of an offshoot of the Brotherhood of younger Muslims who do not want to restrict women's rights who resist the integration of Sharia law into Egyptian society as well. But this splinter group is smaller and younger than the seasoned Brotherhood leaders. In short, it is difficult to be positive about the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Should they attain any degree of power in the upcoming elections in Egypt, it would not, in my judgment, be a positive development. Thirdly, a word, a bit more of extended word, about Pakistan. Since the United States killed Osama bin Laden, U.S.-Pakistani relationship seems to be at an all-time low. There's little doubt that the Pakistani military is undergoing a deep internal crisis of identity. Traditionally, the Pakistani military has been viewed as secular and as a disciplined organization. However, as Farid Zakaria argues, the evidence is now overwhelming that it has been infiltrated at all levels by violent Islamists, 
including the Taliban and al-Qaeda. It appears that Islamic ideology is replacing strategy. Zakaria writes, quote, For over 60 years, Pakistani's military has focused obsessively on its rivalry with India. Large elements within that military appear to be switching obsessions, and the United States is replacing India as the organizing principle around which Pakistan's military understands its national security interest. If this happens, not only is the Afghan war lost, but Pakistan is also lost. Pakistan is drifting into a strategic black hole. Does it really wish to become an enemy of the United States, currying favor with Islamic militants? Or does it want to join the family of nations and seek to destroy the jihadist militants that are actually destroying Pakistan? Because the United States has poured over $20 billion into Pakistan of late, how these questions are answered is critical to this nation as well. Finally, in this update on the Middle East, I would like to think briefly about Turkey. Since World War II, Turkey has been a reliable ally of the West. It is a member of NATO, and as that, it was on the front line of the Cold War against communism in Europe. But by 2000, Turkey was a feeble nation both in terms of its regional influence and in terms of its economy. But now, about 10 years later, in 2011, things have changed. Turkey stands absolutely transformed as a nation. Unlike all the other Mediterranean nations, Greece, Spain, Portugal come to mind, Turkey has an economy that is robust, with an investment-grade credit rating low inflation, and no pressure from the International Monetary Fund, which is pressuring Greece and Spain and Portugal and Italy and the other nations of the southern Mediterranean in terms of Europe. It's now a vocal member, as Turkey, of the G20 Club of Important Economies. Some forecasters predict that during the next decade, Turkey will go faster than any nation economically except China and India, of course. In short, Turkey has a flourishing economy, and when you look at its demographics, a young population. The magazine The Economist argues Turkey has become a pivotal nation. Its geographical position, wedged between the European landmass, Russia, and the Middle East, has given it a new strategic importance, especially in the energy pipeline business. And its new assertive foreign policy is making it count not just in neighboring countries, but as far afield as China and Africa. Turkey is also critically important as a nation in the Muslim world. It is, and it remains, a Muslim nation functioning as a secular democracy. There is a separation of Islam and state in Turkey. But compared with the rest of the Arab world, it has been hugely successful in economic in diplomatic and in military terms. Membership in the European Union, which had been the goal of Turkey for years, no longer seems that important. In fact, the way the European Union treated Turkey, with its list of demands for even changing its culture, is it any wonder that Turkey now sees the European Union as superfluous?
Turkey was once an ally of Israel, but it seems it no longer is an ally. It is trying to fill the gap, the vacuum, left with the collapse of Iraq, the resurgence of of, uh, Iran, old Persia, and the confusion of what's going on in Egypt. Turkey sees itself again as a key leader in the Muslim world, and its strong, robust economy and its young population gives it some authority and credibility to be a leader. As this perspective has shown, the Middle East is a region in the middle of enormous change. These changes overall, in my judgment, do not bode well for the United States, and they certainly do not bode well for Israel. In our second and final perspective, it will be a lengthy one on the program today, I want to think with you about the fad of reincarnation. In the United States, there is a growing fascination with the belief in reincarnation. In fact, adherence to this belief, a belief in reincarnation, is a part of psychiatric therapy, what is now called hypnotic regression or past lives therapy. Only psychiatrists could come up with labels like that. Now remember that reincarnation is that belief uh, in the transmigration of the soul, that the human soul is reborn into different bodies as it goes through the cycle, if you will, a very cyclical view of things. And the goal of reincarnation ultimately, at least from the Hindu and to a great extent the Buddhist worldview, is to attain nirvana, to break that cycle of reincarnation. Well, what's happened in the West, Europe and the United States particularly, is a melding and molding and shaping and kind of integrating a belief in reincarnation into the worldview of the West. And that's why it's now popular in some part, albeit a very small part, of modern psychiatry. One very famous psychiatrist, his name is Dr. Paul DeBell, believes that he, in a past life, was a caveman, and he's talked about that, that his eternal soul also inhabited the body of a Tibetan monk, and that he was, in another life, a conscientious German who refused to betray his Jewish neighbors during the Holocaust. Another well-known psychiatrist, Dr. Brian Weiss, conducts group hypnotherapy sessions in which he takes people through their past lives, all for a fee of $355. Now, as a sidebar, according to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, today over 25% of Americans believe in reincarnation. And it's interesting, in that aggregate of 25%, Women are more likely to believe in reincarnation than men, and Democrats are more likely to believe in reincarnation than Republicans. The growing love affair in the United States and Western civilization with the East probably began in 1968 when the Beatles took their infamous pilgrimage to India and spent a significant amount of time with a Hindu guru. Their music and their lifestyles changed as a result, especially that of John Lennon. 
How do such hypnotic sessions or past lives therapy work? Such a session takes several hours and can cost $100 an hour if you're meeting with the psychiatrist personally. Under hypnosis, the patient follows a guided vis visualization. For example, in his sessions, Dr. Weiss encourages his hypnotized patients to imagine walking through one of five doors. One door has the year 1850 on it, another 1700, another 1500, and so on. This entire approach to therapy is controversial and it is not widely accepted in the psychiatric profession. But it does symbolize the lure of the East. With the demise of a commitment to biblical Christianity in the West and in the United States, and the growing pluralism of this postmodern culture, we should not be surprised with this fascination with Eastern mysticism, especially reincarnation. Now, there are two important facts about biblical Christianity in a discussion about this resurgence of reincarnation and the allure and appeal of Eastern mysticism. First of all, biblical Christianity clearly articulates a linear view of history, not the cyclical one of the East. What that means is, as a linear view of history, time has a very specific point of beginning, creation. And God's program of redemption, which is the key to history, is clearly linear. Any study of the Bible necessitates a rejection of the cyclical view of history, so central to the belief in the cycles of reincarnation. The second point biblical Christianity makes is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which makes clear that there is no cycle to life, to reincarnation. The text says, is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. It is imperative that those committed to genuine biblical Christianity have a biblical perspective on the spiritual world of Eastern thought, especially Hinduism, one of the key sources of a belief in reincarnation. God's truth provides answers to Eastern mysticism. The Christian gospel is clear and straightforward, but it is the convincing and convicting work of the Holy Spirit that brings a person to Christ. As we share Christ in both word and deed, it is imperative to remember that our prayers and our dependence on the Spirit bear the fruit of the gospel. However, there are critical bridges or contact points of similarity between Christianity and Eastern mysticism that the Spirit can use. Bridge number one. As with the Christian, a Hindu, or someone who believes in reincarnation, ultimate reality is spirit. And John 4.24 teaches that God is spirit, and those that worship him worship him in spirit and truth. That there is a spiritual world, and that the world is ultimate reality is a powerful commonality between these two faiths. Bridge 2. Central to Hinduism and much of Eastern mysticism is the belief in the unity of all things. Given this conviction, the Christian can build the bridge that natural revelation reveals this unity focused on God himself. Psalm 19 comes to mind. Romans 1.18 and following comes to mind. The next critical step, of course, is to get that Hindu, that focus of believer in Eastern mysticism, to think of the special revelation in Jesus Christ. Bridge three. 
Rooted in the law of karma, Hinduism teaches that there is a sense of justice that permeates the universe. If the Hindu falls short of karma's requirements, he's condemned to an endless cycle of reincarnation. For the Christian, that sense of justice has been met in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Bridge 4. Seeking to break the cycle of the soul's transmigration of reincarnation, Hinduism has a passion for freedom. For Christianity, Jesus provides that longing for freedom. Faith in him provides the freedom from sin and its bondage. And of course, John 8 teaches that. Bridge 5. Hinduism teaches and respects the significant cost that there is to the religious life. The typical Hindu honors and defers to the devout, the holy, and the ascetic leaders of their faith, for they are close to breaking the law of karma and gaining the freedom from reincarnation. Although Christianity rejects extreme Hindu, Hindu asceticism, it does teach death to self, and in other sentences, self-sacrificial love as paramount virtues of our faith. Hindus can identify with that. But we must remember several key points as we build bridges to an Eastern mystic. Many believe that ultimate truth is a synthesis of many truths, and they separate Jesus revealed in history from the Christ of the Christian faith. He is not the only path, nor the true path to salvation. Christians, of course, would reject any kind of syncretism. Revelation is the only source of truth, and Christians cannot surrender that. Secondly, many believe that are in that commitment to reincarnation and Hindu thinking, that all religions lead to the same goals, and that none possess full truth. Often Hindus contend that Jesus is a way to salvation, but he is not the way. Here then is perhaps the most formidable barrier between Christianity and Eastern mysticism. It's Jesus, exclusively Jesus. Finally, Hindus believe that there's divine revelation in all religions and that none can claim exclusivity. Therefore, Christianity is not unique. But Hinduism is like a sponge. It soaks up all teachings, absorbs them, and then redefines them according to the syncretistic teachings of Hinduism. If Christians are to reach Hindus, we must understand this tendency, build the bridges, and then allow the Holy Spirit to do his supernatural work. There is no other way to reach the Hindu for Jesus Christ. This belief, or this resurgence of belief, I suppose one could say in reincarnation, and we're seeing it even in these minority groups within the psychiatric profession that are practicing hypnotic regression, indicates this desire for spirituality, this desire for mystical experience, and hence this belief, this resurgence of belief in reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach that. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We need to reach out and understand those who are committed to Hindu thinking, especially that belief in reincarnation. It is now meshing with Western thinking and Western rationalism, and we must be ready to give a defense for the gospel in Jesus Christ. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.